Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Good morning, Christchurch London Central Service. How are you doing today? Marvellous. I'm not sure about a sermon. I just really want to hear last say Wagamama's again. <laughs> Wagamama. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the best part of this sermon right there. There we go. Anyway, uh, as you are well aware, this time next week, it is gift day. Yeah, love your excitement. And so we are taking a few Sundays to talk about our hopes and prayers to raise £200,000 across all of our services, both to cover our existing running costs as a church, to start new services in London, as well as taking time out to talk more broadly about our vision as a church and the part that we have to play in all of this. Now, I just want to acknowledge at the outset that giving is nobody's favorite topic. Nobody came to church today hoping, oh, I really want them to speak about giving. Uh, A number of years ago, there was a very large survey done, thousands of people who were asked, what is the most awkward, difficult, and uncomfortable subject to speak about? And giving came in at number one ahead of things like politics, religion, and even death. We would rather talk about death than giving. I don't know about you, but I sometimes share this discomfort. But when I read the New Testament, I kind of wonder why. Because Jesus talked about giving the whole time. In fact, Jesus talked about giving more than anything else apart from the kingdom of God. And I think he did so because following him, and therefore true spiritual transformation, it involves our hearts. And it's there in our hearts where giving has its most potent power. Uh, Jesus very famously put it like this. In Matthew chapter 6, where you put your treasure, that's where your heart is. If I think about where my money goes primarily, probably at the end of that paper trail, that's where my heart is. In fact, Jesus goes even further. He personifies money. Imagine money and its power as a person. He calls this person mammon. And again in Matthew 6, he says this, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Jesus and mammon are fighting for our hearts. Who's going to win that battle? And so this morning, I just want to look very briefly at this battle between Jesus and mammon for our hearts. And my hope is maybe at the end of this talk, we can put mammon in his rightful place and maybe for some of us re-enthrone Jesus as Lord of our hearts. So I want to start by reading one of the shortest parables that Jesus ever tells. If you have a Bible, I would love you to turn to Matthew chapter 13. And the words will be on the screen behind me. And we're going to read from verse 44 through to verse 46. This is what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. I just want to start with a very brief uh, book recommendation. One of the most profound books I've read in a long time is called Dethroning Mammon by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, who, of course, spoke on this stage back in November. It's actually a short devotional he wrote for Lent a couple of years ago. And it talks about this battle between Jesus and Mammon for our hearts. It is very challenging, really made me re-examine my own attitude to money in a number of different places. And you might be able to see it on the screen is an artist's depiction of part of this parable in Matthew 13, someone discovering the pearl of great price. And so all I want to do in this talk this morning is look at two comparisons from this parable between the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of mammon. 
that we again can put mammon in his rightful place and enthrone Jesus as Lord of our hearts. First comparison is this. The kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is hidden. It's like a treasure hidden in a field, a pearl hidden in an oyster shell. And therefore, conversely, the kingdom of mammon is very, very showy. One of the things I have done in my spare time over the last 15 months or so, kind of like as a hobby, is research some of the wisdom literature that we have in abundance through history and some of the latest psychological principles to come up with the, the kind of tools we need to live the wisest and best life possible. I've got 37 different principles so far. I've really enjoyed it. And one of the principles I came across was what psychologists call conspicuous versus inconspicuous consumption. I want to start with a little bit of a thought experiment for you. It's coming up on the screen behind me. Which of these would you prefer? A, a salary of £100,000 when everyone else around you is earning £150,000. Or B, a salary of £90,000 when everyone else around you is earning only £70,000. Hands up if you would go for option A. £100,000. Okay, a few hands around the room. Hands down. Hands up if you go for option B. Okay, keep your hands raised. These are the people that would have 10,000 less just to have more than everybody else. <laughs> but that's what I went for as well. And that is by far and away the most common answer when you ask this question. Now, second thought experiment. Which of these would you go for? Four weeks annual holiday a year when everyone else around you has six weeks or two weeks annual holiday a year when everyone else has only one week? Who'd go for option A? Okay, almost every hand raised. Would anyone go for option B? Hands up. Not a single hand raised. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of the opposite result. We'd go for more holiday, even if it compares less favorably with everyone else. Why is this the case? This is an example of conspicuous versus inconspicuous consumption. Conspicuous consumption is investing our treasure, our finances, our resources in anything which is easily comparable with other people. Salary, income is an obvious example of that. Possessions, our title, our position, our popularity, number of followers on Twitter, number of friends on Facebook. Inconspicuous consumption is investing our treasure in stuff that's harder to compare. Time off is a good example of this. Yes, I suppose you can make a holiday conspicuous by bragging about it on Facebook, but generally speaking, I don't know what you do in your time off. Same with me. It's harder to compare. Giving generously to others, investing in relationships, friends, family, are other obvious examples of inconspicuous consumption. Now, we'll come back to this in a moment, but all the research says joy and life and peace is to be found in the inconspicuous. But why is this the case? Why doesn't money, possessions, position, why doesn't it lead to lasting joy? Coming up on the screen is a picture of one of Britain's most successful businessmen ever. His name is Roger Dudding. You probably haven't heard of him, but the product he sells is empty space. A number of decades ago, he watched a trend developing in the UK, as had happened in the US as well, of people having more and more and more possessions than their homes could hold. And so he thought, what if I find some storage units, the first in the UK, where people can store the stuff they can't keep in their homes? When he had the idea, people thought he was mad. Who's going to pay more money to store stuff that they will never see? And yet he sold more and more and surfed the wave to become a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. In the US right now, it is estimated that there are more storage units just for stuff than all the McDonald's, Starbucks, and Subways combined. 
Psychologists now reckon we have six times more stuff than the previous generation and any other generation before that, and yet we are no happier. Why is this the case? Why doesn't all this stuff, this abundance around us, why doesn't it lead to happiness, to lasting joy? Let me give you three of the primary reasons. Number one, we adapt. We adapt. Coming up on the screen is a very simple, basic graph of what happens to our emotions after a very positive event, like winning the lottery in this case, and a negative event like a nasty accident, losing a limb, paralysis. Our emotions in each case end up returning to what I would call baseline levels. In fact, they have done a lot of research on lottery winners and have found they are no happier, or they are as happy as they were before the lottery win within around about 12 months. We might think that a lottery win would change our lives. In reality, it is no more than a temporary boost to happiness. We adapt. Second reason that stuff, possessions, money, doesn't lead to lasting happiness is we expect. We expect. Coming up on the screen is a picture of my first ever computer. This is the Atari 65XE. Did anyone have one of these out of interest? I was the only lucky one. There we go. Uh, I love the catchphrase, power without the price, uh, otherwise translated as no power at all, basically. <laughs> um, if I wanted to play a game on this, I had to take a cassette, some of you have no idea what that is, but you know, a small little tape, put it in that cassette player and sit with the computer in case there was an error for 25 minutes for the game to load. And of course I wouldn't do that now, and yet I still remember the moment I opened this. Christmas Day, 1989. I was like, whoa, this is like totally bogus, dude, because that's the language we used in 1989. <laughs> this is like totally righteous, man. Yeah, I couldn't pull that off then either. But of course, there's no one alive today that would wait 25 minutes for a game to load. Why? Expectancies have changed, and therefore, we are far more easily disappointed as a result. We adapt, we expect, and then thirdly, we compare. We compare. Put up the next slide. Does anyone not know who these people are? Anyone not know who they are? Hands up if you do not know. Ah, oh, my people, my people. We can form a club. Uh, these are the Kardashians. These are the Kardashians. These are the people that we're supposed to keep up with now. You see, as, as much stuff as I might have, as good as it is, around the corner, there's always a pesky Kardashian with something better than me, and it makes me less satisfied with what I've got, and I long for what they have instead. A couple of years ago, I was in a church in America, and the guy at the front used an example of a new invention, which was this button and bleeper you can attach to a TV remote control. So whenever you lose it, and we are always losing our TV remote, whenever you lose a TV remote, you press this button, and the TV remote goes beep, 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 and you can find wherever you have lost it. Well, I have wrapped my brain about five million times about what that sermon was on. I mean, I guess it was God and the Bible and Jesus. I don't know. The only thing I left church with that Sunday was, I've got to have one of those remote controls. That was it. Some of you are like, I want to Google this right now. I can see you. I can see you. Why? Two hours ago, I didn't know it existed. And now I know, and now I need one. We're forever comparing. Uh, this is illustrated very powerfully in a movie called Amadeus. Some of you may have seen this. It tells the story of a man called Antonio Salieri, who's utterly consumed with envy. He basically rages against God 
because he keeps comparing his own musical ability, which is outstanding, with Mozart's, which is genius. And he's just furious at God because he is not the best. In reality, Salieri has everything he could possibly want in all the world. Respect, talent, money, the respect of the world. He could have been Mozart's friend. He could have been Mozart's sponsor. Instead, metaphorically speaking, he's still on Facebook every single day comparing himself and angry because he is not the best. Uh, the movie is named after Mozart's middle name, Amadeus, which means friend of God. That could have been Salieri's story. Instead, it ends with him being taken off into asylum, raging at the priest, saying, I speak for mediocrities everywhere. I am their champion. I am their patron saint. He thinks he's mediocre. Of course he's not. He's just eaten up with comparison. We adapt, we expect, we compare. And so investing in the conspicuous doesn't lead to lasting joy. Conversely, it's in the hidden where real joy is to be found. If I gave you all £100 this morning and said you can spend it on A, yourself, or B, someone else, all the research, repeated research, says you will be happier if you give it away, if you spend it on someone else. That's where joy is to be found. And yet here's what I find interesting. Though joy is to be found in the inconspicuous, what does our culture trumpet at us more? It's the conspicuous. If today is an average day for you in London, you will be bombarded with over 5,000 advertisements, all saying buy, obtain, consume. You need this. There speaks a culture that has bowed the knee to mammon. And in a culture like that, it is very, very difficult to see the hidden power of the kingdom of God. Would you know what it looked like if you saw it? One of the most obvious examples of the hidden treasure, of the hidden power of the kingdom of God would be in communities that are called L'Arche, uh, founded by a man called Jean Vanier. Now, if you've never heard of them before, they're communities basically for those often severely impacted with physical and learning disabilities. And Jean Vanier has said to a number of people who have everything and yet feel empty inside, come live among us and you will be healed. Uh, Justin Welby, in this wonderful book, he says, Lash is probably the most obvious example of a community that has dethroned mammon and renounced its power. I want to show you a short clip of Jean Vanier speaking about what this community is all about. It's three minutes long, so let's watch it now. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. We're in a culture where power and beauty and capacity have value. And those who are less capable or apparently have less gifts um, should be got rid of. So this is a part of a culture, a culture of, of force, of individual success, each one going up, going up the ladder as high as they can go, and promotion and money and, and all this sort of, sort of stuff. It's all got mucked up because there's a culture which is saying that I have to be more powerful than my neighbor. And being more powerful than my neighbor, I don't learn to share it with people. I learn to be above them. So the secular world 
is a world where there can be a danger of forgetting the we, that we're part of a, a family. How can this change? The question will always be how to lose power. So spirituality then is about getting close to people who've been rejected. It's breaking down the wall that separates the rich and the poor. But there's something else. It's a meeting. And a meeting implies that I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. We're just children of God. It's that movement of going down, not believing in power and in promotion. When somebody meets me in the depth of my being, where I don't have to pretend that I'm better than others, there's a liberation. A liberation to be myself. There's only one thing that really matters. Relationship. Do you love me? Do you love me as I am? And so that is a place of revelation. Somewhere, the discovery that we can meet without any ladders. And I receive your gift, you receive my gift. So there's something that happens, a moment of communion, a moment of joy. And that's where fundamentally joy is. When we meet people, not above them, not below them, but as children of God. Did you see the kingdom of God there? Nothing showy. Nothing boastful. Nothing superficially tempting about those three minutes. And yet, though the kingdom of God is hidden, I think it's hard not to see it in three minutes like that. This is what we're about here. As you are aware, last October, uh, we started our fifth service in Sutton that uh, Joy and I have been getting off the ground. And uh, we've seen a couple of people come to faith already, which is amazing. But the, I think the most moving moment for me is we had a couple of children join us, seven, eight, nine. And these are really badly hurting children. Uh, they don't have any friends to speak of. They've been severely bullied for a prolonged period of time. And then they come to church. And I got to watch the kids in our community open their arms and say, we'll be your friend. Come play with us. And these beautiful kids, they didn't want to leave. It's like I was watching salvation come to a whole family. It's a little picture of the kingdom of Jesus. This is why we do this. This is what we're to build here. A community where we sit at hospital bedsides of those who are sick. Where we stand in solidarity with those who are grappling with a lack of self-worth. Where we weep with those wrestling with incalculable grief in a nation that has appointed its own loneliness minister, so great is the level of community breakdown, we want to provide a radical example of what a community of friends could look like, where everyone is welcome and where there's always room for one more. This is why we do this. Over the next 20 years, it is estimated that 2 million more people will come to this city. 
And without the church, all they are going to hear is mammon, 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 buy, invest. This is where joy is to be found, and it really doesn't work. And we want to start service after service after service across this city that gives people a taste of something better. This is what we are about. Do you see what we're doing? Next week's gift day is not just another offering. No, 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 no. It is so much more than that. And whether you give or not, and if you do give whatever you give, I want to encourage you, don't be dazzled by mammon. Look deep into where joy is to be found in the hidden power of the kingdom of heaven. Second and final comparison between Jesus' kingdom and mammon's kingdom is this. Kingdom of heaven is one of abundance and joy. Kingdom of mammon is one of sadness and limits. I have to confess, as I studied this parable that I've uh, read a number of times, I've always read it wrong. Guy finds a treasure, and then we're told he has to give up everything he's got to get hold of the treasure. And I've always read cost and sacrifice and pain into this story. Uh, Many of you will know the story in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. A guy called the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, what must I do to gain eternal life? And we read these words. They're coming up on the screen uh, behind me. Firstly, this. I love this phrase. We're told Jesus looks at him and loves him. I love that. Whatever you give, even if you don't, Jesus looks at you and he loves you so much. And then he says this. One thing you lack. Go sell all you possess. Give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. But at these words, this guy saddened, goes away grieving, for he owns much property. Now, we'll come back to this in a moment, but I've always read that into this parable in Matthew 13. Here's a guy who finds a treasure and, oh, no, I've got to give up all this stuff to get hold of it. Cost, sacrifice, pain. If you read it, there is none of that in Matthew 13. When this guy finds the treasure, he doesn't have to think twice. It's an immediate response. This is a deal worth doing. And we're told he goes and gives everything up with joy. I don't know why I'd never noticed that word before. He lays down everything with joy. You know, I always thought this guy in Matthew 13, maybe he was like the rich young ruler. Properties, cars, and he's like, oh, I've got to give all this up. But I think it's worth it just about. I'll get hold of the treasure. Well, maybe that's not who Jesus has in mind. Imagine instead that this field is worth 10 pounds. Maybe it's swampland. You can't build on it. Anything worth anything in there is hidden. You can't see it. And all this guy in Matthew 13 owns is a plastic carrier bag with a few possessions worth 10 pounds. Well, if that's who he is, suddenly it's like, I can give this plastic bag up and I can get so much more. That's kind of what's happening in Matthew 13. And there's two parts to this. Firstly, the joyous laying down of conspicuous consumption. The joyous laying down of his old kingdom and then the joyous inheriting of the kingdom of Jesus. Let me take these in turn. Firstly, the joyous laying down of his old kingdom. This is an illustration I heard from a a theologian called Doug Wilson. I want you to imagine that you are trapped in a cavern underground in utter darkness. And you're stuck there, you can't get out, and you comfort yourself by kind of snuggling, nuzzling what you think is a teddy bear. And you live this way for many years, stroking this teddy bear to get some kind of comfort. And then one day, somebody comes in and turns on the lights. And you look down and you realize what you thought was a teddy bear is actually a giant hairy tarantula. Some of you didn't like that illustration. (laughs) Well, what do you do in that moment? There are two ways of handling this moment. The first way is, ah, 
ah, spider, run away. That is repentance. That is how the Bible sees repentance. Repentance is not, oh, here's all the things I want to do with my life, but I can't do it anymore because I have to follow Jesus. That is not repentance. Repentance is seeing conspicuous consumption, seeing wild life for what it is, and like, that doesn't bring me joy. I don't want to live for that anymore. Am I living a repentant life? Have I truly seen conspicuous consumption for what it is? Ah, the spider thought it was bringing me comfort. No, not at all. But then there's a second way of handling that moment. Rather than throwing the spider away, it's, you know what, can I, can I turn off the light again? I'm going to go back to pretending that this is bringing me comfort. I was happy before. Let's go back to living that way. This is why it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because we can always just spend more and more money on superficial comfort. I'll get something else and I'll stroke the spider once more. And that might seem like a ridiculous way to live. I want to just be honest with you. I'm in that place often. Uh, just full disclosure here. I am partly responsible for the reason we have this gift day over the next two weeks. Sorry, guys. And when I first realized we'd be having a gift day in March, just to be honest with you, my initial reaction was, oh, man. Oh, man, got to give more away. It's going to cost me, really? Oh, man. The most challenging line in this book by Justin Welby is maybe that's one of the surest signs that I have lost sight of the kingdom of Jesus and that mammon is fighting back for the affections of my heart. I was like, oh, ouch. The fact we're talking about giving this morning, anyone respond with, oh, church is always after your money. Oh, gift day again. Maybe mammon is fighting back for the affection of your heart. Maybe it's time to repent and say, no, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I want lasting joy. But it's not just the joyous laying down of my old kingdom. It's the joyous inheriting of a new kingdom. What do we get in this new kingdom? What do we inherit when we lay hold of the kingdom of Jesus? Well, interestingly, after the rich young ruler goes away sad, Peter, the disciple, comes to Jesus and he says this. It's on the screen. Behold, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. He's laid down conspicuous consumption. He's got the treasure. What does Jesus say? He says this. Truly, I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Well, firstly, simply what Jesus is saying is when you get hold of the kingdom of heaven, there's a multiplicative effect. You get a hundred times much of what you lay down. But let's just tease this out for a moment. What's Jesus really saying here? You see, back, back in the ancient world, religion was less something that you believed and it was more something that you were born into. And so religion was connected to your family, to your relatives, to your whole community. And so if you decide to change religion, if you decide to follow Jesus, it's not just a change of belief system. Oh, I think Jesus is the Messiah. I'm going to follow him now. It affects everything. Often you have to leave your household. Your family reject you. That's partly where the persecutions that Jesus spoke about come in. But in an agrarian economy, you lay down your livelihood, your work, your property, your investments, your security, your pension. You lose everything. And so these early followers of Jesus, they walked into this radical new community with hundreds and hundreds of brothers and sisters and mothers and children, where they just gladly shared everything because they had no other option. This is what we are about. 
Think Jean Vanier. This is the family of God. This is what we're to build here in Blackfriars. A kind of radical community where my family is your family. Where my food is your food. Where your iPad is my iPad. Like, this is the family of God. This is the kind of radical family that we're to build here. Joyous sharing. Joyous laying down of our old kingdom to inherit something better. But, 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 I think we get something even better than that. Even better than the family of which we get to be a part. Because if you read Jesus' words, he lists what we lay down and what we take up. I've highlighted them for you. We lay down home, brother, sisters, mother, father, children, fields. We get back a hundred times home, brother, sisters, mother, children, fields. Something's missing in the second list. Can anyone see what it is? Father. Why does Jesus leave that out? Had he forgotten? Jesus doesn't forget. This is a radical idea. This is a profound idea. You see, in the ancient world, over every family, there was like a big daddy figure. In, Rome, in Latin, it was the pater familias. Somebody who owned all the property, all the money, all the investment portfolio, made all the decisions, they just did everything. What Jesus is saying is this, when you come into this radical family, you don't get a multiplication of those now. That's not what church leaders are to do. Yeah, we make the decisions over the money, thank you. No. Jesus is saying in this new family, this new family of God, this radical new community, over this family, there is one big daddy in heaven who is abundant, who's joyous, who's generous, and whose economics are so much greater than ours. You know, sometimes I come to an offering like we're doing over the next two weeks, and I come with what I would call mammon's economics. Let me give you an example of mammon's economics. If I give to this offering, I will have less and church will have more. If I give £10 next week, church will be £10 up and I'll be £10 down. Mammon's economics. Why? Because I'm not factoring in my generous daddy in heaven. Let me give you some other examples of mammon's economics. I'll, I'll give, yeah, I'll give, but only when I've sorted out my own financial situation first. Mammon's economics, why? Because who's the part of familias? Who's making all the decisions over money? I'm not factoring in my generous daddy in heaven. Here's another example. I'll, I'll give to church, but only, only what I can afford. Only my spare change. Only like I'd give to any other charity in the world. Mammon's economics. Why? Because I'm the one making the decisions. I'm not factoring in my generous daddy in heaven. Anyone guilty of that? I am the whole time. You know, since I've become a dad, I think there have been some moments when I've got just a fresh insight into God's dealings with me. Uh, all children are born slaves to conspicuous consumption. You know, my kids, it's all about mine, 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 mine. And they're saving up these little piggy banks of coppers for stuff they won't even care about in a few years' time. Well, about two weeks ago, my little girl Mia, who is six years old, uh, she lost one of her baby teeth. And she thought, I'm going to put it under my pillow in the hope that in the night the tooth fairy will come and replace this tooth with some money. Uh, one of her friends at school got 10 pounds from the tooth fairy. I was like, 10 pounds? The tooth fairy's had a few significant promotions since I was a child. Um, well, the following morning, um, the following morning, Joy and I have totally forgotten about this. And Mia comes down in floods of tears. Tooth fairy's forgotten all about me. And I'm like, oh, what do I do now? And I start you know, pastoring my six-year-old. And I had a genius idea. I was like, well, well, Mia, you know, 
Think of all the millions of children in the world. You know, sometimes because, you know, they're under pressure, they have to send the work experience to Ferry. And don't judge me for lying to her. Don't judge me. It's like, you know, they're on work experience. They just give out hugs rather than money. Well, while I'm, while I'm pastoring my daughter with lies, again, don't judge. This is church. You shouldn't do that. Um, unbeknownst to me, upstairs, my boy Brody, who's eight years old, seeing his sister crying, he's like, oh, I feel really sorry for her. He goes into Mia's room. He empties all his savings under her pillow. And he writes her a little note to Mia. Sorry this is late. Lots of love from the tooth fairy. And then he comes to the top of the stairs. Mia, Mia, the tooth fairy's been. And she's wiping her eyes and she comes upstairs. And when I saw this moment, my heart exploded. I was like, thank you, God. He's taking after me after all. <laughs> Glory. I've doubted and now I see it. Like, now... Here's the, here's the point. When I got Brody aside, do you think I was like, well done, son. Like, I might need a loan again next time it happens. Is that, is that all right? Do you think I was like, oh, well done. How much was it? 57, 59p. I'll see you in a couple of weeks, all right? No, no. I just loved him so much. Like, I so want to bless you right now. I'm like, you come with me. And I took him to the shops. You know, relatively speaking, I've got more money than he could dream of right now. Like, you come with me. I'm going to buy you everything that you were saving more for and more. Why? Because you have stumbled upon something of the kingdom of God. You know, sometimes I wonder if God's dealings with us are not so different. Two and a half years ago, we had a gift day in Christchurch. Uh, this time it was in October. And Joy and I prayed very seriously about what we should give. We gave our money. And then if, about three months later, January rolls around, New Year, and I'm praying and I have this kind of nudge in my spirit that we also need to increase our regular giving to the church. And so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of praying and thinking about this. And the more I pray, the more I feel there's spiritual significance in this. Well, as I'm kind of praying about what, what we should give in our regular giving, um, uh, Joy and I had had an inheritance from my grandfather. He'd passed away and uh, we'd, we'd booked a really nice holiday. We'd seen this uh, lovely hotel on, uh, online and we booked this kind of a special family holiday uh, with uh, granddad's money. And I thought, to get excited about this holiday... I will go online and check some TripAdvisor reviews of our hotel so I can get really excited. Uh, this, I kid you not, is what I found. And I've uh, blotted out the name of the hotel for um, their reputation's sake. The first one, one star, do not stay here ever, capital letters. Second one, dissatisfied and disgusted. Third one, roaches in room to greet, dirty sheets with popcorn and greasy stains. Uh, the one that freaked me out was one star, spiders. <laughs> and it, it went on to talk about these huge spiders that walked across the wall in the night and across the bed sheets in the middle of the night. I was like, I have booked Bates Motel for my family. <laughs> what am I going to do? And I started to think maybe I should take the money that I had allotted to increase our regular giving by and put it into seeing if we can afford a, a new hotel, a better hotel. And as Joy and I talked and prayed about this, we thought, no. Like, there's something spiritually significant in this. This is important for us. And we'll be out the hotel more than we're in the hotel. I'll deal with the roaches and the spiders. It'll be fine. And honestly, honestly, I thought nothing more about it. About three days later, my phone goes, and it's an international number. Normally, I'd busy them. For some reason, I picked it up. Hi, is that Andy? Yes, it's Andy. Gave his name. No idea who this is. Never met him before or since. He says, Andy, um, a bit of a weird call. But I've heard about what you're doing in London, and uh, I've kind of been praying for you. And I kind of had this nudge that um, I'd like to pay for a four- to five-star hotel for you for two weeks in my nation, which was the nation that we were going to. He said, would that be okay? 
Well, I have to confess, I put the phone down because I didn't believe this was a real person. And I called uh, overseas to try and work out, is this a real person? I actually, when the bill came through, I spent £30 on that phone call, which I <laughs> now deeply regret. And this guy calls back, he says, sorry, I think we got cut off there. I think, I think we did. <laughs> he booked the most amazing hotel, two weeks, not a roach, not a spider in sight. When I told Joy what had happened, she said, Andy, we have to give more. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> so we prayed and we gave more. Three days later, someone comes up to me. He says, Andy, I was praying for you. I felt I should give you this gift. Ten times the amount we had given the second time. When I told Joy, guess what she said? We have to give more. <laughs> so we gave more away. About three days later, I'm in a leadership team meeting with Dave and Lars and Nate. My phone goes, it's another international number. I'm like, it's her on the side of caution this time. I stepped out of the meeting to take it. Hi, Andy, you don't know me. Been praying for you, and I'd like to transfer some money into your account. Would that be okay? Six and a half times the amount we'd given the third time. This is all happening in the space of around about two weeks. Well, at this point, I kind of cotton on to what's happening. I call Joy. I'm like Del Boy. I'm like, hey, babe, this time next year, we'll be millionaires. <laughs> uh, and uh, then it all stops. <laughs> now, here's the point. Here's the point. Like, was any of that God? I don't know. I can't prove it. But I have lost count of stories like that in my own life and in the lives of many people in this room. You know my best explanation for stories like that? My daddy loves me. My daddy loves me. And when I step into the family of God, I don't just get you, my amazing church family, who I love very much. I get the most abundant and generous and joyous daddy over this family, whose economics is so much greater than mine. Now, just to be clear, this does not mean we come to next week's offering and say, hey, God, here's my gift. I really don't want a holiday in Hawaii. Nudge, nudge, you know. <laughs> don't do that with God. You know, don't come to next week's offering thinking, I'm going to give God, I really don't want a Ferrari. Wink. You know, don't. When my kids do that with me, I see right through it. You know, sometimes Joy and I have given and we've not got anything back. Sometimes we have given and actually it's been financially tight for a while. But what I have known is mammon's grip being loosened. But throughout my entire journey with finance, what I have increasingly known is the generous, fatherly love of my amazing paterfamilias in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is hidden. If you go into next week's offering without thinking about it, you can miss the power of it. You really can. You're going to settle for the superficial, quick fix of the kingdom of mammon. And the kingdom of heaven is one of joy and abundance. Are you going to come in with, oh, sadness, grief, cost, sacrifice? Or are you going to come in knowing there is the most wonderful, joyous father in heaven? He's saying there's so much more. Come taste and see. Maybe the band want to come up. Why don't we all stand to our feet for a moment? I'm going to pray for us before we sing a final song of worship. Just one final thing to say is, is you know, I, I won't know what any of you give in the offering over the next two weeks. Um, I really don't mind. On one level, I really don't care. You know, if we don't make the 200,000, we've got a generous daddy in heaven. He'll take care of it. It's going to be fine. But I want to encourage you all. Why don't you use this as a moment? Why don't you use this offering 
as a reminder of what really matters in life. But why not also use it as a moment to allow Jesus to metaphorically speaking punch mammon in the face and leave him in his rightful place and allow him to be Lord of our hearts? Let me pray for us right now. and you bow your heads? Loving Father in heaven, we just want to start by saying thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus, your one and only son, who actually, just like this man in Matthew 13, joyously gave up everything he had, his very life, because he'd found a treasure, us. So I want to pray that we would respond with grateful hearts. Keep us from settling for the superficial kingdom of mammon, of its limits, of its sadness, of its grief. And help us to taste more of the joyous kingdom of our Father in heaven. Lord, we love you. Lord, we honor you. You are magnificent and wonderful and splendid and glorious and holy and worthy. And may the songs that we sing now, may these words not just be words. May it be an expression of our need of you, our love for you, and our longing for more of you in our lives. Come now by your spirit as we worship. We give you all the glory. Amen.